Hello and welcome to episode 21 of Let Them Eat Cake. I am your host Jack, my co-hosts are John and Ace, and what is this week's topic? Uh, today we're going to have an interview with Project Leaflet. Um, he's been doing a lot of work in Ukraine involving training and things like that, but he also has a history of being in Iraq at one of the most crucial points there, and it's a lot of people don't have an advanced understanding of Iraq, but where he was is the only place where Al-Qaeda actually was in Iraq, uh, which is Mosul. And uh, he was, he, after, everyone's focused on the Battle of Fallujah, but the Battle of Mosul is really when ISIS comes to be, because um, uh, Zarqawi starts working with Al-Qaeda there. And so he basically got on the ground in Iraq there and witnessed that battle and just saw Mosul change. And it, you know, it's still not the same. It's always been just an extreme insurgency checkpoint that they always go to. But then we also talk about uh, the evolution of drones and drone warfare in Ukraine and some of the stuff going on there. Um, but uh, also, uh, while he was in Iraq, one of the things that in Mosul, we found the biggest chemical weapons lab that was ever found in the war on terror. And it's like an insane lab. It looks like they're trying to make Frankenstein in it. And with uh, with chemical weapons, we also have um, an information hazard in Iran right now. There has been hundreds of girls getting sick and being sent to the hospital. It is suspected to be a deliberate poisoning, but there's a lot of misinformation around this because right when it right when it happened, people kind of ran with the ball and said, oh, it's a chemical attack, it's a chemical weapon. And then even like the reports that they found nitrogen gas, which is the most common gas in the atmosphere. It's not something indicative. Um, so, you know, it, you never know. It could have been like a food allergy. And, you know, everyone's food got contaminated, but it's been happening over months. And this also happened before in Afghanistan. And it was kind of undiscovered and like nobody figured out what was going on. And we kind of expect the same thing to happen in Iran because it's probably most likely linked to the government. But we don't know. But all we know is, is that they're suspected deliberate poisonings. And anything other than that is kind of running with the ball and letting Iran win because one of their main tactics is to dilute the information space. They want to discredit them by, because they'll make people start saying that they were hit with sarin gas and like, you don't live through that, you know? And so they'll get protesters saying that they'll build bots that will say that shit. And it just completely pollutes the information space. So while we're on the topic of uh, current events that are probably going to be um, escalating tensions, um, we want to talk about the Americans that were just kidnapped in Mexico and Ace is going to, talk a little bit more about that yeah so a day or two in mexico four americans from south carolina were there for a cosmetic procedure a, a tummy tuck basically were uh were kidnapped in their in their van it was and they turned up dead quite recently and i just think it's uh it's an interesting thing to talk about because not too long ago uh wnba star Brittany griner was tr there was a prison exchange for her and uh, a Russian arms dealer known as the Angel of Death after Griner had already spent months in Russian prison for bringing marijuana into the country, right? So, and I think it's just an interesting thing to talk about because there's any time an American gets killed in another country or gets sent to prison in another country, uh, especially Mexico, there's always this kind of two sides of the coin where it's like it's 
it's there's one side where you'll have more conservative people, more like Republican leaning people saying they're being soft and they're not doing enough and they're not trying hard enough to get these Americans back. And then there's the other side that kind of just waits and lets the situation play out and sees what's going to happen. So I think it'll be an interesting discussion to have on what should the U.S. do or the State Department do about American prisoners in other countries, American hostages in other countries, or, you know, people who have been killed by criminal groups in foreign countries, Americans who have been killed by criminal groups in foreign countries, especially one that's as close to us as Mexico, where it's like, you know, it seems at least on a surface level that there is a very easy capability to kind of not necessarily like go in like boots on the ground, but to find these people and to know who's responsible and to more covertly take these people out. So it, it is, it is, it is an interesting conversation to be had. All right. So yeah. And they were kidnapped by the uh, golf cartel, which um, it's one of the big three, um, but they're pretty notorious around the border. But two of them were actually found dead. Um, I, we think one of them may have died right at the shootout, maybe both of them. And then a third one was in critical condition. And then, so I think they've already exchanged them. They've already dealt with the cartel. It was actually a mistake by the cartel. They thought they were like a uh, Haitian drug traffickers. I think I, I have it right in front of me. Oh here. shit. That's, that's awful. <laughs> yeah. So they, they literally, they literally, because they were all, um, African-Americans, they thought they were. Haitian drug traffickers and like they were trying to like hijack their supply so it was kind of like a mistaken identity and the the golf cartel kind of fucked up but it comes at a really important time because we have Ann Coulter on Timcast talking about how we should invade Mexico we have um, Marjorie Taylor Greene goblin toes talking about how she wants to invade Mexico and start bombing the cartels and things like that so it really came at the worst time because there's a lot of accelerationist towards war in Mexico rhetoric. And um, I predicted this a long time ago, talking about the border wall, about how the border wall is just going to end up being a point about how there's going to be a war over the border or something like that. So, And speaking yeah, of uh, down we south, basically clean up the cartel problem. Yeah. And yeah. And but the thing is, is that it's not it's like it's Mexico's responsibility. <laughs> We're the market. We can we can yeah. legalize drugs. We can force them to legitimize. Uh, you know, it's just like the mafia was running garbage, you know. Well, the, the other the, the other thing too, waste management is a fucking ex mafia. The the relationship between the areas that the cartels control and the Mexican government is so unbelievably complex that if we were to somehow disrupt it, it would, yeah, it would just fuck everything. Also, but, like, only, yeah. the majority of Mexico's population is only in, like, around Mexico City. Most of Mexico yeah. is not populated because it's a very, um, it's all, it's got, like, a golden range, and it's where Mexico City is, and that's where people have always lived. But also, speaking about problems down south, we also have um, some accelerations in the um, Cop City protests. And I know Jack uh, is always interested when people are throwing fireworks and stuff at police. So, well, yeah. So there we, was, uh, I guess we saw a group of, uh, as they're saying, as uh, Antifa. I, I guess they probably are. I guess you could probably classify them that way. Is that how they're identifying? I'm not actually sure. Like, have they have they said that they've they've done it? No, well, Antifa doesn't exist. Antifa is an idea. 
So yes, they're all anti. They're all Antifa. As long as it's a left wing protester, it's Antifa. That's how it works. Sure. Okay. That's it's a broad classification for everyone. Sure. But you know they all circle. It, it, like, you know, like some. Well, of the, it's like, it's black block at the minimum. Well, we'll just say that. I don't think that's a thing either, though. It's just it's just people who care about some truth. The anarchists. And, uh, yeah, there's anarchists there for sure. There's communists. I feel like there's sure. there's probably a big uh, spread of ideologies. Mm-hmm. That's what they said. Like, because there's just regular hippies there too who mm. just want to save the forest. Someone get Rose Warfare in here right now. He made a documentary mm. about this. But yeah, they um they attacked a police compound. The cops ran like pussies, which was very funny. Um, and they're throwing fireworks, and they've been hit with domestic terrorism charges, which doesn't really make sense because terrorism is technically. Uh, fear and it actually you violence you, you require you, re- you require a felony to be committed, and they've only been charged with misdemeanor charges. So domestic terrorism domestic terrorism technically shouldn't be a charge that's upheld by the Supreme Court, but that's not the point of why they're charging them as an intimidation tactic because yeah, it has like them. a mandatory minimum of like five years or something. Yeah, yeah, that's all it is. They're just trying to scare people out of protesting. And, and the entire town basically doesn't want this place and this police complex to train police. And, you know, and the government has voted for it. The corporations have paid for it. And so most of the funding is coming from big budget corporations like Chick-fil-A, Home Depot, UPS, Delta Airlines, uh, Wells Fargo. Chick-fil-A. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. And I like the only that one that makes sense there is like home or, or uh, UPS because you see UPS trucks get hit all the time. So UPS, I can see why they would want to invest in police, but it's just like Home Depot, all this stuff. Wells Fargo. Delta Airlines. Wells Fargo kind of makes sense. So they have, they yeah. have, a, they basically have a, they have a company, uh, a corporate backer for the police. This corporation of companies come together to make an entity, and they have a representative that is basically someone who is a corporate entity in the police department, and that entity then has um, basically set up this complex that works with the police. So it's direct. Um, like basically just financial, like fronting and nobody wants it there, but because the corporations are going to pay for it, they're also going to make the taxpayers pay 30% for it as well. So the people that live there also are going to have to pay taxes to pay for 30% of the bill. And they've also been breaking the law because there's permits that they have where, um, cause the activists have like said that, like, you can't go past this line. They've had successful stoppages and permits and things like that. And the police have just been building it anyway. They don't care about the law. It's cause cops are above the law. Didn't you know that? Mm-hmm. So we'll just get to the interview, but, um, so interview with well, project. Do you want me to do a transition? Yeah, sure. Right, I'll do it. <clears throat> uh, yeah, I'll, uh, I'll work it in. Um, so with that, we'll um, get to our interview with Project Leaflet. No. Great interview today. Transition's not good. (laughs) I got it. We have a weapon more powerful than the British Empire. And that weapon is our refusal to bow to any order but our own. Any institution but our own. My name's uh, Chris Naginuma, and I uh, own Project Leaflet. I'd say it's kind of a mix of uh, open source intelligence, um, talking with guys that are overseas and documenting their stories, 
and getting um, combat photography as often as I can by heading downrange. For me, it just kind of came about um, naturally, I guess, because I had started out when the war really kind of broke out through doing gear acquisition and connecting the dots for people. Um, we kind of have a, a network through Signal that a lot of us are in country and out of country and we help move things around. And that I started reporting a lot on like what was going on over there and just placing it on my personal page. And my personal page started getting a lot of attention. Um, and so I wanted to kind of separate it and that's how uh, the leaflet kind of came about. Um, and then that took off pretty, pretty quickly um, just by sharing a lot of that footage. You've also been on the ground and been able to get your own footage at the same time too. So, yeah, we were over. I went over with Nick from Battles and Beers. Um, oh, they're they're awesome. They're great. Yeah, Nick's a great dude, and um, we had tried to put a plan together, uh, and then we had hooked up with Atlas Global Aid, um, who supported our trip over there and uh, took care of our flights and helped us with a translator, and um, put a medical uh, personnel with us. And we were able to kind of move around the, the country um, for about three weeks. Um, we were over there uh, doing uh, just documentation, really a lot of interviews um, and photography with a, with a mix of different people, um, not just frontline fighters, but uh, civilians and people that were also had a, a small hand in, in the war that's going on over there. There's been a lot of uh, issues with NGOs and things like that. Yeah. You know, you actually worked with one to get over there. You've actually done gear acquisition. Um, how do you kind of sort out between, you know, what's good and bad and where to put your, you know, because people are throwing money out, out there and there's scams happening every day that we see. Yeah, that um, that's definitely been um, a learning process over the last 10 months. Um, you know, when I first started doing this, uh, probably in month one and month two, there was a lot of NGOs that we were kind of either working with or that I had personally gotten involved with. Um, and you just slowly start to see them break away. And it's, I think because initially when the war started out, a lot of things were really um, kind of loose um, and, and like anyone could just kind of go over there and fight. Um, people were going over there and doing all kinds of different um, crazy things, acting as NGOs or nonprofits and as time went on, either that support for them kind of dwindled or their organization um, really wasn't there because Ukraine and a lot of the people coming in needed to have um, actual like paperwork documentation and, and stating what they're doing as time went on. And so you see a lot of these, I think, smaller organizations really kind of um, just couldn't keep up or couldn't um, organize themselves well. And then even now, some of the larger ones are having uh, problems maintaining money. And, um, you know, I know a lot of guys that have kind of nuked their own life trying to make this continued and, and uh, make this work. This is very similar to um, Afghanistan. Like there was like there was all kinds of people going in there because there was just bounties on people's heads. And they were just letting anyone go in that country. And like there's like so many people because like you know like the guy who blood sport is based on is just like his story's entirely made up like he said that like he's like bending the seals at cia there was tons of those guys over there where they were just pretending that they were like special ops and they would be going in and actually like arresting detaining and then like tortured people and they weren't like on the books for anyone they were just guys over there who were bounty hunters and it was just complete lawlessness yeah, month one and month two was definitely um, more lawless. You know, now anyone that wants to fight in Ukraine, they, they got to have a green book and they're doing enlistments. 
Um, most people start through the Legion. Um, so, you know, when I was over there, was, everyone was pretty well documented. Things were pretty strict. Um, you know, I, I had to get a press pass with the MOD, and that helps me move around the country. Um, they don't just kind of let, if you don't have that, like going over there with a camera and, and um, just becomes a lot harder to move through checkpoints. So I think they're getting a lot stricter on, on who can enter. Uh, there was a lot of um, uh, foreign people going over to Ukraine to fight. Um, a lot of them, I remember hearing stories where it was like um, they would go over there but not let her leave. Like they would basically uh, trap them there. Um, how common was that, did you find? Or how common are international fighters over there? There's there's a lot of international fighters. Um, there's a fair amount of dudes. You know, when we did our interviews... I think we did about 30 of them um, and maybe a small handful, five of them, six are actual Ukrainians. Um, the other ones were all predominantly Western fighters, um, Georgian Legion, uh, guys that had some type of affiliation back to Ukraine and just decided, hey, like either, hey, my family was from here or uh you know hey i want to go get busy and kill some russians um a fair amount of dudes that were prior military vets um then went over and fought with the kurds and then now they're over in ukraine um you that tended to be a pretty uh normal rotation for a, a fair amount of the guys that i've seen um so are that they just are they just like freedom fighters or are they like no no they're, well? they're all in just, the... it's like they 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 did their military contract and then they went to the ypg international and now they're in ukraine yeah right and then when they went to ukraine a lot all a lot of these guys um they're all under contract so they're they're all either with the legion or they're with the sso um they're either signed a one-year or a three-year contract um they've got what's called a green book which states that hey i'm military i'm listed um, you know, I, I haven't, to be honest, I haven't ran into any guy that's over there. That's like, I'm just here to get paid. I'm just here to get money. Um, you know, the mercenary title is something that's so far off of anything that I've experienced in regards to what a mercenary actually is and what these Westerners are actually and, doing. I mean, you have experience with mercenaries, I'm sure. Uh, you know, look, I, I haven't experienced any of them. Oh, the military contractors, you know, that. not just... What's that? Military contractors, you know, not actual, like, you know, like, what are they? Not like Wagner mercenaries, but there was military contractors in Iraq. Sure, there's contractors, but you can't say that, you know, Blackwater Global or Dynacor or any of these dudes are mercenaries. So they're, mm-hmm. they're I agree. Mercenaries. I agree. But the one, one of those was pretty controversial, but, you know. Uh, like B-Dub? Yeah. I mean, but they, you know. Maybe, maybe the term itself is a bit outdated. Maybe we should use a different term. Well, well, mercenary is like mercenary. You can, you can Russia depends on mercenaries for their mm. for their military. They can't well, field a military well, that, without mercenaries. Sure, I mean, in that sense, would Russia have more mercenaries on their side then? Yeah, they need them. Yeah, because mm. I, I remember that they were um, pulling prisoners out for, um, for Wagner. Wagner. Some of the some of those prisoners wild. are free now. Some of them survived. No shit. Yeah, there's a they had a big post about it, like the first rotation of guys that um, mm. survived through their their tour and got released. Um, you know, it's not it's not a lot. You know, Bakhmut's to to like talk about these guys that are going in from prisoners. It's been estimated that fifty of the thousand prisoners that were pulled from Bakhmut, forty plus thousand of them are dead. 
So it's, you know, it's not like these guys are having great odds. Um, but to their point, you know, I'm sure Wagner probably needs the forces and um, they probably are looking at it as an out. Yeah, well, I mean, and Wagner why, also why has priorities that they have in other places in the world too. They're, you know, they're not just operating in Ukraine. And the oh, same goes for Russia. they sending best people down to Africa. <laughs> it depends. It depends. But also, <laughs> one of Russia's big problems is that they have too many officers in their military. Really? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, they don't have a big NCO branch like we do. Um, Interesting. You know, that's something that kind of hampers them pretty well. Um, and But I, what I mean by that is, like, if you look at, like, the U.S. Marines or U.S. Army, a lot of those guys that are your E3s, E4s, E5s, your very middle ground branch, we can war off of them. You know, we don't necessarily need a lot of high command. Those guys are very operational on their own. They understand what's going on. They understand shoot, move, and communicate. Um, they probably you know, understand better than a lot of officers, way. right? Say that one more time. They probably understand a bit better than a lot of officers, I imagine. That's how it is here, where a lot of the um, the NCOs would be uh, more proficient and trusted by the soldiers than their officers. Uh, yeah, you got to understand that, like, a lot of the officer guys, there's only, like, one platoon officer per platoon, like, in the infantry. Yeah. Um, or And a lot of the time, the NCOs have a lot more time and experience or time on field than the officers have. Um, and so that's why that there's usually a different type of trust relationship where it's like, yeah, you are an officer, you are in charge of all these guys, but if you're a, a brand new butter bar, like shut the fuck up and understand like what's going on here and learn from your guys. The downside with the Russian forces is that they're, they're running a lot of things officer based and control based. So unless they get a direct order from someone of higher, there is no middle ground NCOs that are saying, Hey, we should probably adjust 400 yards off to our left side because we're getting hammered here, like they'll just continue to get hammered until an officer tells them to do something different. Um, it just, it's not very, it's very old style of warfare. But on the other hand, I think this is probably where you'd have mercenaries kind of make up for that because they can kind of operate and be doing their own thing. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I don't know Wagner, you know, I don't know how they operate. Yeah. Me either. Um, I, I know, I know some stuff about them, but. It's... Yeah, you know, every force has a place, um, and Wagner seems to, at, at one point in time, have been a very decent operational team. Um, I think now they've they've cycled through a very large amount of their guys, and so that's why you see them backfilling a lot of this. Yeah, and like the 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 front in that they're doing right now, they're just wasting guys. Like it's like a it's like a point of pride for Wagner at this point that they're just. And it's really just all Wagner in that area. It's not really Russian forces moving. Uh, yeah, around the uh, Soledad and Bakhmut area, there's a lot of Wagner down there. Yeah, and like I've just been looking at the numbers of how many of them are like dying every day, and it's it's insane. The stuff that's going on there, you know, it's like that. It's the type of conflict where if you're in those trenches right now, it's like you don't you don't come back home the same person no matter what. Yeah, we, you know, when I was in Ukraine, I was blessed to spend some time with an organization called Task Force 31. And I was able to train some of their guys. And I think they had a group of maybe 30 to 40 individuals that we were working with that, uh, that week. And half of them had already come back from Bakhmut. And they were essentially the guys that had survived their initial rotation. And then the other half were guys that had just enlisted. 
And, you know, three weeks ago, these guys are carpenters, glass repairmen, shoe manufacturers, pretty standard individuals. And they had been given, I think, three to four weeks to prepare, and they were about to cycle back into Bakhmut. And, you know, it's hard to explain to someone that hasn't experienced war, um, like what what Bakhmut is truly kind of like. Um, you know, even most Westerners who have spent a couple of got like let's just talk decades fighting in Iraq and Afghanistan, you know, none of us have the experience of what's going on on these fronts. Because, yeah, the, uh, the the cold factor is a completely different thing. And yes, you know, it's, it's a whole peer to peer operation. You know, we've never we come into into a country and we decimate the air. We come in and we decimate the ground like we we just completely wipe these things out. We then come in, we put the heavy boots on ground and support our, each other. That's not really how, you know, the, the East is working. You know, you've got attack helicopters, BMPs, BTRs, tanks of all, all types, you know, trench warfare where guys aren't really moving. It's just, uh, we haven't really experienced that or, or experienced heavy artillery bombardments against us. Yeah. So, artillery going on both sides too. How like that's, that's doesn't happen often in the world. Uh, no, yeah, you're, you're definitely very much seeing already shoot and then have to move because counter battery comes in and it's, you know, that's not a normal thing for us either. We know we normal our, our 155s are normally placed and, and pretty chill. Yeah, you know, I, so uh, I've heard that they've been going back and they're using like older artillery pieces because they have longer range as opposed to like their newer ones that can shoot more, uh, more not shells. Not so much longer range. It's more like you're seeing guys cycle out like, like right, you've got the 155s and 105s and like the really lightweight artillery became popular over there because they could fire a lot of rounds very quickly and then move that light, lightweight artillery piece very quickly. Where the 155 is a heavier piece, it does offer you GPS guided munitions, but there's a trade-off. And so guys over there are really kind of playing both hands of the deck. You know, how heavy a fire can we shoot without getting counter batteried right away? Um, and that's where like the weight distribution and being able to move quickly is, has become a big thing. Well, in, if that's the case, would artillery not be becoming uh, antiquated just like tanks? Artillery is the has... main factor in Ukraine, I'd say. I think but that doesn't necessarily make it not antiquated. If that's the case and everyone's having struggles with artillery, would that not make it antiquated? Do something better. I, I think what you're going to see more of is the drones. You know, you're seeing yeah. like heads that are coming in where your your artilleries are firing, and there's plenty of this footage that's out there where artillery pieces are getting set up, and they can just send a suicide kamikaze drone directly into you. And it's so tiny, you know, all it has to do is send shrapnel into the barrels or whatnot, and it's going to damage the piece. If you spend time in the military, most military dudes know that you have an armory. And like, that's where, you know, your weapons go and your nods go and all that other supplies. Now you're starting to see that there's an armory and there's a drone room. And uh, those drone rooms are people that are just manufacturing and custom making different drones. And like, I think it's FVP drones, the ones that you pilot with the goggles on, are becoming pretty popular over there. Uh, they're sick. They're insane. Some of the footage from those are my favorite. Yeah, I've done a couple of coverages on those where you're seeing um, they're using different uh, drone setups where they'll take an RPG, put it on the bottom, take the booster out, and then they'll just drive it directly into the side of an armor. Um, like, and it works. Uh, the other ones that I just posted a video of was a big... They had a big eight quad uh, rotor drone and they had taken, um, 
think it was initially 3D printed uh, pieces of uh, circular, I guess, tubing. And they would take an 81 millimeter mortar and slide it into the bottom of the tubing and it would lock and grab the tail end of the mortar. And then they would put six to eight of these around the bottom of the drone. An 81 millimeter mortar heat, you know, that, that'll, that'll blow up any, <laughs> pretty much any armor that's on the field and they just free drop it on top of you. So I think that type of technology is going to just continue to, to move forward. And, um, you know, it's something that we haven't caught on so much in the United States on our force. Well, I was going to say, this is actually, if you actually look at the, um, the military doctrine that they've come out with, this is a direction that the military has been talking about wanting to go. At the same time, they're yeah. also developing rifles that we may not need that are a little too heavy. But they have, I think they call it like additive manufacturing. But they, they're planning on like, they, they like are planning on like being able to 3D print entire bases at, at some point. Mm -hmm. so um i yeah, think that'd be cool truck that actually 3d prints rooms and ceilings yeah yeah and so it's, it reminds me if you've played death stranding that's what you basically do is print bridges to, to get around in the game mm -hmm. so yeah it's not going to slow down um you know everyone that i've spoken to in some type of capacity whether it's you know frontline fighters military leadership eod medical they're all implementing drone technology in some way, shape, or form. Um, and so that's that's just going to continue to press forward. And I think it's going to continue to press forward very quickly. Um, that advancement won't stop. I mean, think about how quickly air power um, developed from World War I. Uh, that's exactly what we're seeing. We're, we're seeing literal dumb the, bombs the, dropped the, from drones just like World War One. gun too. Like Yeah. Yeah, and, and what's scary is that you can't really um you can't really do much about it. You know, if um there's no civilian drones in Ukraine. Um that was something I, I kinda asked a, a few people that were in military and law enforcement and they're adamant no one's allowed to fly them. So if you see one pop up, you you know that it usually it's for some reason unless you've got some type of pass somehow yeah. um you know it's it's usually either up there for reconnaissance or it's got something attached to the bottom of it um and in speaking with a fair amount of guys you know it's it's very scary um because you can pop a dgi up for eight to 15 minutes worth of flight time and they're very small they're very hard to shoot out of the air if they're high enough they're very hard to hear um all these things now have a lot fair amount of them have thermal systems on them they can gps locate you right away you don't know if it's a friendly or if it's not a friendly um it's just so the fight kind of like stops for like a, a couple of minutes while these things start flying up and watching movements and then once it comes back down everything kind of like restarts again um so it's an interesting kind of like what you're saying how the the technology is starting to shape the battlefield again much like it did you know the machine gun in world war one or airplanes in World War One, um, you know, I think this is something that we are going to see a, a big change in the way that guys fight. And I mean, if you look at uh, Iran, Mossad's favorite weapon to hit them with right now are just these quadcopters, and they they hit them so hard that they caused an earthquake. Not that not the one that just happened in Turkey, but literally when they bombed Iran, an earthquake happened. It was it was a small earthquake was registered because. Iran has all these tunnels, so they're able to like detonate a lot of shit in those tunnels, whatever they did. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, it's, you know, you've got all kinds of different technology of the drone coming out, whether it's a loiter, something that's flying around and moving, um, whether it's quadcopters, I mean, it's, it's not gonna, it's not gonna slow down. And it's just gonna get scarier. Yeah, and then, you know, you know, we also have the factor of the Iranian drones, too. And um, I'm not sure, but it seems like the just manufacturing these quadcopters are kind of more effective than, the, than these Iranian drones. Uh, well, I, you know, you could say that. And I think that you have a big support chain that's coming behind Ukraine um, in that asp- application. You know, you could look at guys like Mark Hamill, for example. You know, that guy was able to put in 500 plus drones on his own accord and is now a spokesperson for United 24. You know, so if you have one guy that can do who's obviously a celebrity, but he can do a fundraising and pull 500 drones that's a big amount of uh, technology that falls in from one avenue. And that's not even, you know, talking about anything that's coming over support wise, you know, that's just straight open source civilians, you know, and you've got another guy, um, who is it that runs now Twitter, um, Elon, you know, when you have a private sector that can- That's so funny. You forgot his name. He would die. He would die if he knew that. Yeah. Um, you know, like you, that he's a private sector individual, but can come in and put Starlink into a country and immediately give forces the ability to communicate. You know, that it's not even military. You're talking about the civilians that are coming in that can change the course of, an, of a warfare on their own accord. It's um, it's just not really something I've seen before. I mean, it's the kind of, you know, look at what GPS did for us. Yeah, it was big. You know, Blue yeah. Force Tracker was a big thing for us. Mm-hmm. looking at this new generation of warfare it's like i don't think a lot of people like it was so predictable that it was going to go towards drones and the amount of investment that was put into like things that weren't drones is just kind of like i just kind of look at it and i'm like come on man like we saw well like when ice the isis used these things like they were just quadcopters and like um, the, they immediately had to start taking out wherever ISIS was getting drones from and stop the supply of drones because they were so effective. It's kind of hard to stop that now. I mean, you can buy drones off Alibaba, you know. DJI. Yeah, for, fortunately, fortunately, ISIS came right before the time we, when you could get them so easily, you know. I mean, just imagine if, just imagine if the insurgency in Iraq had them, you know, and they, were, they had access to just, because they were just eventually just taken on rkgs and making landmines out of them to take out armor yeah i i have never experienced that you know that was very much after my time um the most that we've ever had was like a little recon drone that we could fly out back in the day so to really see this and experience the change it's it's um it's very eye-opening and and like shocking to see it uh because it's 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 more you know it's so autonomous and it's taking the almost the human element out of it um because you know if you're if you're a guy on the ground you're still making the decisions of like pulling the trigger or yes i am going to confirm to drop the bomb or yes there is like bad dudes inside of this house but the whole drone application now is just so um disconnected you know i think we've all seen the amount of like drones flying over guys in foxholes and just dropping a grenade on them um there's not really a whole lot of chance where artillery can fall around you and it's still a human you know loading that round drones just to me are a little um 
it's just weird. It's weird warfare. It's very impersonable. Um, and it, I think it takes away what you're doing to another human with that operator on the other side. You are 100% correct. This is a very dangerous thing. Is uh, drone warfare is going to make it more like a video game? You remember just those about videos? to say, I was just about well, to you, you, remem say you remember those game. videos of the U.S. helicopters gunning down people in Afghanistan? Oh yeah, yeah, Afghanistan? WikiLeaks. yeah. yeah. WikiLeaks uh, I think that I think that was the one that came from WikiLeaks. The one. Yeah, that was Chelsea, that was part of Chelsea Manning's leak. Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, now, <laughs> now it actually looks like a video game, like. All the footage, all the drone footage, the thermal footage, it all looks like a video game. And that is the dangerous part because they're not going to start hiring soldiers now. They're going to start hiring tech bros. Well, and remember, like, the pilot still has to, the pilot and the gunner still have to be in the airplane to do that. You know, they're, they're, while they are looking at a heads up display, you know, they're physically there in danger, physically there confirming that the drone, you're just sitting back. And, um, you know, there is no confirmation really. You're not really doing anything besides going to your area of operation, making your cup of coffee and plugging into your drone for the day. Um, you know, long range drones like that are a little bit different than what some of these guys on the ground are doing with short range operative drones. Um, but you're seeing that technology grow because it didn't used to be that guys just had drones in their backpacks and popped them up either. Um, and that's that's where we've come now. Now you've got long range drones overwatching. You've got drones that have missiles on them. You've got guys that can take a little drone out of their backpack and throw a grenade on the bottom of it and send it into the window. It's just um, it's a whole different type of application. It's like you know, welcome. You're, what you're seeing is modern warfare. You know, it's um, it's just a weird app. It's a weird time of war. You know, because you have a very old Slavic mind of just artillery bombarding the shit out of each other. But then you also have this high technology range that's flying in. Um, I mean, I, I don't know if you saw the sea drones that were made where guys were taking... Oh, those are sick, dude. Kayaks. The ones that they're uh, crashing uh, into the boat, they're crashing into warships out there. Yeah, yeah, they're taking torpedoes. They're basically torpedoes. Together, putting pressure plates on them, using um, Starlink so that they can actually control it and see where it goes. And they just drive them out into the Black Sea and impact it into things. You know, it's this is this is the route that we're at now well it is it is very very funny that it does reflect these video games just to go back to it for a second it's funny that it really really does reflect these video games that they called modern warfare it's very yeah. funny how um uh, fiction leads fact yeah you know i think uh look people still get off on war right that's like why do you think there's tens of thousands of people that follow project leaflet because they want to be as upfront and personal as they can be to war without having to step foot and experience it. And, you know, call of duties and all that obviously feed to feed it. You know, that's how that's one of the reasons why I, I enlisted was motivational videos from the army. You know, it's, it's a, uh, I think that's just part of the, of the game. And now it's um, it's just advanced to where the military is actually meeting with the graphics of, of video games, you know, it's always kind of been the video games or movies emulate what we do in the military, right? Now technology is just it's just good enough that they're both mirroring each other. Now soon enough you'll be able to put VR on and, and plug directly into it and do a shooter and, and experience everything. You know, they made a movie about that called Gamer. Okay, so you've seen combat, you've been on the other side, you've been a journalist in combat, you've been the one in combat 
has your opinion of the military changed? Are you less enthusiastic? Uh, going back now, would you join doing having known knowing sorry what you know now? Would you join the military again? And sort of uh, expand on your current opinions of the military. Sorry, yeah, for a long-winded you know, question. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a good. You know, it's a good question. Um, no, I'm I'm very pro-military. Um, you know, the milit- I was not a good kid. Like to be straight out and clear, I was a I was arrested twice in the same week, like kicked out of multiple schools. I just I was not a good kid, um, and I was one of the guys you know, back in the day that turned on the TV and watched the second plane impact a tower. And that was something that was like kind of an eye-opening experience for me. And I didn't really have another path. And so military gave me something that I could kind of like, Hey, this, this is a career like, Hey, this is what leadership looks like. And Hey, this is why you, you get up and you make your bed or, Hey, this is why you um, can trust people to your right and the left. Um, So for me, the military was something that I think I needed uh, at at that time in my life. Um, Where I look at it now is I'm older, you know, I'm 37. I'm the baby of my platoon. I was the youngest guy that deployed with the rest of my dudes. And now I try and advise a lot of guys. Um, I don't necessarily like the direction that the militaries have taken in like the softening of the branches. Um, I think that they need to be m- more. You're talking about woke nonsense. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yes, but going back to it, uh, you know, I would definitely say I'm. I would. I'm pro military. I think it's. I think it's good for people, especially those who don't have another path. I mean, like, dude, I got eighty thousand dollars for college. It set me up for like, for getting when I got out. Um, so I'm. I wouldn't. I wouldn't down talk it. You know, there's. There's definitely a reason that it exists. Um, and if you're fine with understanding that you're the Republic, then, Hey man, that's more power to you. You know, there's definitely a lot of down talking of it. Right. You know, especially like in today's age, like look at law enforcement, everyone, a cab, right. Every cop's a bastard. Um, you know, people get lumped into things very easily, even though there's a lot of people that do very good in those professions and the military kind of gets lumped in that sometimes as well. I think, I think with cops, there's a, there's a different power dynamic going on. Yeah, look, military is not cops. Could that culture kind of a type of like, you know, trickles over a little bit. Um, but I think people m- misunderstand that the military is, you know, it's huge. Like the army is huge. It's got 300 plus jobs. But there is a small, small percentage of those guys that their whole entire role is just to break shit. And, you know, when we go into countries, that's that's what we do. When we stay into long, stay in there for longevity of time, like Iraq or Afghanistan, it, it weighs on the military as well because the public doesn't like to see that type of, uh, I guess, aggression that you could say. Like, yeah, like, it, it or... was interesting because in the invasion of Iraq, it was all televised. And then, like, after yeah. that, like, because, like, if you remember, there was um, footage that they aired, I think it was even like CNN, where it was somebody who was injured in an operation the day before, a journalist filmed the guy executing the guy who was already like injured on the floor. And, like, that was a big deal at the time and they just like were like no more journalists get out you know um look there's there's war exists and bad shit happens in war right um unfortunately the more that it becomes televised and seen 
I think the forces have their hands um, handcuffed a bit more because the public doesn't like to see how war is conducted sometimes. You know, that's why you saw like year, year 2004, five and not six so much, but there were a lot of hunter killer teams that were in Iraq and those guys were, um, we were hunting a lot and that became a pretty big no, no. Um, once the public started hearing about it and under, and just taking their own opinions on why we were doing that type of mission set. And so unfortunately that also hampers like the ability to track down guys, you know, like why did all of a sudden we were so close to catching Al Zarqawi back in the day? And then it took another two years. You know, the way that you hunt is not always nice and peaceful. You know, violence does solve problems. So when you were in Iraq, in my opinion, arguably in one of the most important places at the most important time in the entire campaign. Um, it was a pretty big deal where you are. You were one of the few people that were actually actively fighting Al-Qaeda. Yeah, Missoula was an interesting place. Um, 2004 was an interesting year for Iraq. Um, we had come in, and initially it was pretty quiet. Uh, but then once the Marines had retaken Fallujah, um, a lot of that, a lot of that heat kind of trickled up into Missoula. Um, and then ourselves, three, two, one, and Deuce Four, which was across the river, um, we really kind of got hit hard for the rest of that our time frame in Iraq. It was a, it was a pretty interesting year. And you see any chemical weapons from Al-Qaeda at that point? I think it might have been too early. That might have been 2005. No, there, you know, there was, right, like, there was definitely chemical agents that we had found. There was a Chlor few. Chlorine, stuff like that. Uh, chlorine, there were some blood agent compounds where there oh, were facilities. Um, we had walked into a few things where our command had found stuff that wasn't uh, mixed yet, and they were kind of separated off into barrels. Um you know, everyone likes to say that, hey, you know, there was no, uh, I guess, you know, WMDs. And, you know, that's the other. Zarqawi guess, uh, was a chemical weapons expert. So even if there wasn't, immediately <laughs> there was once Al-Qaeda came in. Yeah. And, and look, I think a lot of the public, when they hear that word WMD, the first thing that rings in people's minds is nukes. And, you know, that's a very small um, part of that circle that is munitions that fall into WMDs, you know, chemical, like uh, blood agents, all these type of things that really mess you up um, outside of nuclear capability, those all fall under that as well. And they're easily transported and launched inside of artillery rounds, um, SCUDs. Um, just, look at, just look at Syria and the chemical bombs that have been used there, just pressurized chlorine tanks, the modified valves yeah. and fins welded on it, boom. You know, it's, it's not hard. I mean, these guys are smart dudes. They're very ingenious in the munitions mm -hmm. that they make. And look, there's a lot of sand out there. It's easy to bury stuff. And, you know, like you just brought up, Syria is not too far from Iraq. Um, it's easy to move munitions around as well in the Middle East. In 2004, you also had the second battle of Fallujah. That's when you're saying is when shit really hit the fan. Yeah, we we had gone into Mosul, I believe it was October um, of 2004 rotating through to 2005 and it was fairly quiet um there was still fighting that was happening in missoula um but most of the attention was down in the fallujah area because uh the marines had wanted to retake it um we had off i think there was a unit from the strikers that offered to go down that way to support them and then we had stayed up top 
um, with Mazzola with Deuce Four as well. And then once the retaking happened, a lot of the insurgency rotated up into Mazzola. And the, the dynamic of the city really changed pretty drastically, uh, very quickly. The unfortunate thing about Fallujah is that it forced the Iraqi insurgency to start siding with Al-Qaeda, and they hadn't been working together uh, up until that point. One insurgency was, one, one branch um, that's up there, that was up where you were. They were, they were totally involved with Al-Qaeda. But the main one in Fallujah, they didn't really like Al-Qaeda. Because they they weren't they weren't fighting for the interest of Iraq, and these people were fighting for the in, their interest in Iraq. You know, sure, so. right? Yeah, and it's a you know for us it's 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 a very small scope um, compared to like what commands looking at at the large scale. Um, for me, it's just a um, just a dude with a machine gun and here to support my guys. Al Qaeda are criminals. They said they were here to fight the occupation. It's all lies. They are only killing Muslims. Sunni armed groups are a complicated web of alliances among Iraqi nationalists, Islamists, former Iraqi army officers, and a few Baathists. The turning point was this demonstration in Fallujah in May 2003. The Americans had based themselves in a school. The people of Fallujah protested. U.S. soldiers fired and killed 17 demonstrators. The tactics were clear. Attack American soldiers and kidnap foreigners and any Iraqi cooperating with the coalition forces. Fallujah became the stronghold. However, the U.S. backed by Iraqi forces waged two full-scale assaults on the city to destroy the safe haven. It resulted in the fighters spreading to the rest of El Ambar province, Mosul in the north, the Diyala province, Baghdad, and the so-called Triangle of Death, south of the capital. Do you think the U.S. Army uh, made an effect, a positive effect? Do you think that their um, presence in the country uh, was uh, necessary or needed? Or do you think that it became unnecessary? Do you think it was necessary in the I just start? wanted to like... say that killing Saddam was a good thing. <laughs> uh you know, that's a pretty loaded question, right? Um, I think um, Saddam and his sons were pretty, pretty bad dudes. Um, you know, they kept the country in control, but they did it through a pretty piss poor means. Um, did I see a lot of good in my time in, our, in Iraq? Like, yeah, there's definitely moments that, you know, I feel very proud about. Uh, one of them was we were there for the very first voting um, that had ever happened for the people. I remember watching an entire line of people with their thumbs inked um, because they were willing to stand in the middle of a firefight because guys wanted to shoot them, not to vote. But to, for them to have the option to even say like, yay, this person or nay, this person, you know, that's something that um, I hold dear. Uh, I think that's, you start to see like, oh, there's options. Um, you know, seeing women start to drive is something where you're like, oh shit, like we're making a change. Like that, that's not normally something I think, I think that question's hard on for people that are up directly on the ground, right? Because you're seeing those changes in such a different a application than maybe um, high command is where they're seeing entire changes over the entire country. You know, we're seeing it from a very small scope in a very small sector of a very large country but I think when you see those little small changes or, you know, we ran a, uh, we ran a checkpoint called TCP 28 and it was to make sure that every vehicle came in and out of the, out of Missoula was checked. And they had all these TCPs around the entire 
city. Every car came in, every car came out and was tracked and high risk, but um, I think it was high reward. And we would always see this school bus that came in in the northern part of, of it. And there was kids that were up there and they would always put different drawings up on the windows. And it was drawings of like us and saying thank you and and like that stuff that I remember, right? So when I see and, and think about that, I, I think those are the the moments that I kind of hold on to. And I'm like, yeah, man, like I, I made I made a difference out there. And hopefully with enough of the kids that they'll remember it growing up. Um, well, you know, that, that's a big thing. I, I would say that definitely like, a, like it's a really different generation coming to age right now, you know, and those were probably the kids that were there when you were there. Uh, yeah, you know, like we handed out a lot of Beanie Babies, you know, that was a big thing back then, um, you know, taking off our helmets and armor and stopping in the middle of Iraq and playing a game of soccer, you know. Yeah, yeah as bad of a movie it is, that's one of my favorite parts of Hurt Locker is, is like him, like interacting with the kid in the movie. Yeah, and that's, you know, we do that for multiple reasons. It's the same reason why if there's a tribal council of like people inside of a town and they all meet. Right. And they discuss what they need to work on and what they need to build. You go and you sit there and you take your, your helmet off and you sit with them, you know, and it's, it's a, it's like a, a show of respect. And, um, you know, when, if you can get involved and play with kids and like show that, you know, I'm not, I'm not worried about like getting shot here, like the, that type of mindset and the way that you present yourself can really make a change on, um, I think a, a kid's impact of you, you know, and, and that's something that you have to remember yes especially as infantry you're there to break stuff but you also have to it's a very hard job because you have to control both emotion ranges of one moment you may be blowing up doors and shooting people and the next block down you may be handing out you know beanie babies and hugs and playing with kids with pencils and things like that um and that's something that um it became very hard to kind of like understand how to control for a while but i think is one of the more important and impactful things that you you hope to that comes out of this war and I think um, there's a you could a lot of people can make the argument that um, Daesh wouldn't exist if it wasn't for the um, U.S. military presence in Iraq, but the thing is that what's really important about them, um, kind of a silver lining to their existence, is that the first guys that came up and were working with the U.S. a lot of them were selling out for paychecks and things like that, but once once ISIS came they displaced these people from their homes, especially in Mosul. Um, and those people started fighting back. They were able to liberate themselves and it put them in a much better position in that aspect where um, they now have a way more coordinated military program. Mm -hmm. They're not as disorganized. So in a way it actually did um, help the country in a very weird offhanded way. I would agree with that. I mean, you're, you're even seeing like the ISAF who's still holding on, you know, they, yeah, we were going to talk about them. So, you know, they, about that. they really are a huge implementation force that came from our involvement over there and the way that they operate, the way they communicate and talk to each other They're they've been fairly, uh, fairly good in what they do. And, you know, they were a huge, they were a huge reason why Missoula was taken again and why ISIS was kicked out. It's, it's essentially their special operation unit, um, which is really the only guys kind of hanging on in there right now, considering that there's not really a, a structured government in Iraq currently. I'm not sure if, if you're aware of this, but are you aware that in 2002, Al-Qaeda was talking about getting the U.S. to invade Iraq? 
No, you know, I'm not too like I would say spun up as much as you guys are in in but regards to like this. This is, this is just something that's always fascinated me because I've looked into it. The guy who's about to be, who's more than likely going to be the Emir. I don't know what's going on and why they haven't voted for a new one. I don't know. They're not really the Al Qaeda they used to be, I guess. But this guy actually wrote a document because he was their uh, chief, like military trainer. Like he was a colonel in the Egyptian military under Sadat. So like he, you know, this dude is a serious fighter, and uh. He was one of the one the only person who disagreed with doing 9-11. He didn't think it was the right call. And he was right because the the thing is, is we came in and we destroyed his entire like he spent so many years shaping this elite, you know, task force. And we just came in and destroyed them. And so they were on their last legs in 2002. And he wrote what would become the management of savagery, which is the principal document that influences Al-Qaeda and Daesh today. But they had it down to the years where it's like, this year we'll do this. Yes, this year we'll do that. And they said right there that the principal strategy should get them to invade a country like Iraq, Jordan, or Syria. And so one of the reasons why we invaded Iraq, one of the small reasons, there was, a few, there was many of the things that they tried to play up to get in there was... Um, uh, Ibn Sheikh al-Libi, he, he was shipped to Egypt and he was tortured in Egypt. And under torture, he said that Saddam Hussein is working with al-Qaeda to get weapons of mass destruction. And we know that, that he made this up at the time, but we don't know if he was told by al-Qaeda to say this. And that was the plan from the start. So I think there's a lot of things that could establish a motivation where the U.S. was manipulated to going in there. And um, a lot of times while they were still in there, Al-Qaeda was manipulating things. And I think it took a while for the U.S. to figure out how to actually combat Al-Qaeda. And they were just killing us with information. They could just outthink us in so many ways. I would agree with that. You know, remember, all those guys have his time, right? Where our president and all them tend to rotate every four to eight years. And then they tend to change their cabinet. Um their leadership, their understanding of information, where some of these other organizations, like what you're speaking of, um, they don't necessarily need to do that. And if you have to wait 20 years or 30 years... I'm very curious. Like, it, it, being in a wartime scenario, being on the ground, was there a, a feeling of imminent death? Like, was that a, a feeling that was going around, or is it less... In Iraq or Ukraine? Uh, both. Um... Not, I wouldn't say imminent death. Like, you know, that's not really, I guess, like in in your mind, right? Um, Iraq was very, um, you know, you're you're very structured almost for us. Like, it's like, hey, you're doing a four hour mission. Um, if that may run longer, if it goes bad, uh, when you come back, you've got four hours. Go work out. Go eat. Go do whatever you need. Maybe you'll do four hours of guard shift. Hey, then you got four hour mission. And so you're like, you're on this kind of rotation with all your buds um, and you trust those guys. Right. So I, I don't know if there would be, there wasn't a, a position where I was like, oh shit, we're in, this is like bad. Like this is real bad um, because we, we do a lot of support by fire and we bring a lot of hate. Um, I think there was moments when um, a lot more shock when we, when we lost someone or if, um, uh, you know, I lost my Lieutenant over there and he was, he was very close to a lot of us. 
And I still remember like the play-by-play of like everything that happened, what the platoon did. And, you know, sometimes you just can't stop things. I remember the first time I stepped out of a truck in Iraq and we were in the middle of a circle. And I think that was like, oh shit, this is real. Like I pointed a gun at someone that was walking towards me. And all he did was kind of take a left, (laughs) walk 10 paces, take a right and just keep on walking by me. And it was like, okay, these guys really don't care. Um, I'm feeling pretty insecure here. <laughs> and I think that was more of like a, an eye-opening experience of like, okay, like you need to, you kind of need to change your parameter of the way that you're thinking um, more than, oh shit, like we're going to die. Ukraine was, was that, well, sorry, just before you get onto Ukraine, no, was ahead. that almost, um, uh, uh, was it almost a realization of the lack of authority that you had? Is it, is that more what it was? Um, yeah, I think there was a, like, you know, remember these people have been in, in a war zone for, for their whole entire lives and been, uh, commanded by an iron fist. Right. So sometimes coming off as like a nice guy doesn't really kind of get you anywhere. Saddam also tortured his own soldiers for morale boosts. You know, that's the type of military we're talking about. Yeah. A hundred percent. Like, let's go back to like when they had an Olympic team and when they lost and they tortured all the Olympians or Olympians that were in Iraq, you know, it's the way that that country was managed was, was not a story about a officer that would have to bring his own lash with him everywhere he went because he screwed up so much and would be whipped so many times on, you know on the feet and look we we obviously do corrective punishment and stuff like that but ours is in the form of like push-ups and like you're doing a run and go find me a pretty rock and you know we're not we're not beating you to death and so i think there's a there's a there's a huge change there right um but yeah to your point i think there was a realization of like hey there's uh the authority and the way that you have to interact i guess is a little bit different than what i expected um and I still remember, you know, we how real things are over there when we rolled up on a on a one of our first missions in Iraq. We had uh, supported a, an MP, a military police unit that had gotten hit by an ID or a suicide bomber, I think it was. And he blew himself up. None of the troops got hurt. And we rolled up as like QRF, a, a quick response force um, to support them. And I vividly remember talking to the guys and I'm like, Hey, what do you want us to do with the body and the brains of this guy? And his response was, he looked right at me and he said, fuck them. The dogs will eat it all. Leave it. And I was like, okay, we're in a different type of world. And that was just a unit, you know, that had been there for like, I don't know, 10 months or whatever in rotation. So like their mindset and, and level of coldness was different than like our rotation rolling in. And so you start to understand the parameters of like how the game's played and the way that you have to be kind of like in a mindset. So on on this depressing topic of death, I was going to say, so obviously a lot more people die in Ukraine. Um, Do you think that it's easier to deal with if there's a lot of people dying around you than if there's just like the rare occasional dude that you're really close with? I think the harder thing about it is that, you know, you, you, you can't really compare it from like, let's say, you know, World War One or two, where there were so many of these guys that were dying, you know, now in Ukraine, a perfect example is our medic that was with us and our translator, Alex, great kid, kids, 22 years old, Olympic snowboarder, 
gave it all up so that he can help his country. And we were having a conversation one time about um, his friends that he knew and how they had all graduated and he had 44 of them. And he was like, eight months have gone by and I have two of them alive. And he's so, I, I don't know if it's necessarily an easier topic to say, hey, 30 of my friends are dead and how do I cope with that? compared to whether I have one friend that was very close to me and we lost him because sniper fire or something, you know, it's situational, but death is death. And it's very hard to cope with it and understand it. I think, um, until you've been around it. And I think it, it, it's harder on the mind in my personal, I guess, opinion when you're seeing such a large amount of your friends go away. Um, you know, I couldn't imagine losing all 50 of my platoon dudes, um, in, in one mission. I don't, I don't know if you ever get used to losing people. You know, I think you prepare as much as you can and you support each other as much as you can to minimize the amount of possibilities of it. Um, but if it's your time, it's kind of your time and they can happen by numerous amounts of reasons, right? Um, whether it's a guy sniping you from a mile away or a couple hundred yards away, or, Hey, an artillery round comes in and knocks out four of you because of shrapnel. It's um, you just kind of become, I think, numb to the aspect of that is part of the game and that can happen at any point in time, but you try and minimize those risks as much as you can. Okay. Now let's transition to something nice. <laughs> to put well, it the end here, you know, just, you know, just not something so grim. <laughs> um, I did have a question though. Could you, um, uh, are we finishing up? What are we doing? I mean, we've uh, it's been pretty solid. I think we can wrap mm. up pretty like fifteen minutes for padding. Yeah. yeah. Well, I was I was going to ask you just to close to recite us a story from either Ukraine or Iraq. Dealer's choice, I guess. Yeah. Just okay. sort of a a wartime story or a, a story on the job or, or whatever you want. I, I got it a good story for you that was uh and i actually I, I videotaped it luckily while i was in the car in ukraine um we we were heading east and we actually connected with a security team that some of our friends gave us um and they were there pre predominantly because as we were heading um heavily east it, it gets pretty um you just need to know what you're doing you know it, it's just a different dynamic than on the west side and when we were entering into kind of like the border area that separates, it's like, hey, like this is this is your your kind of uh, you're in a danger zone now. Our I was recording and our security lead came over the top of uh, our radio that we had and he was driving in front of us and he gave us just a nice warning saying, you know, welcome to Ukrainian tour. Your chances of dying today are 60 percent. But luckily, the weather outside is quite nice. Welcome and have a good day. And it was just kind of like, okay, you know, like we're no longer in Kiev or Lviv where things are quite normal. Like you are now entering into the danger zone, like, like take this serious. Um, and that was kind of an interesting dynamic of, you know, the dark humor that still um, is around all this um, type of military lifestyle and how you cope with it all. Right. Yeah. That's a really big thing is people not understanding military humor. There's a lot of it, man. Um, you know, I have a bunch of photos where, you know, the the age generation is so different now. 
from when I was in Iraq, you know, GoPros didn't exist yet. You know, you, having a Game Boy Color or something or, a, you know, the, the old PS when it had a small the mini discs was like technology was just moving forward. Now these guys have TikToks and, you know, mu putting music overlay on every video is, is very much what this generation does. And I, I think writing on your kit is a way to also get that comedy across and in a way to, to get that expression out. And so we had saw a lot of guys in Ukraine that, you know, they had written like on their medical pouches, last chance, like hope this works. Um, just like in, and it was on like a lot of different things that you would see where the comedy was just kind of placed around in little places. And if you paid attention enough, you, you could pick up and be almost put into that type of lifestyle a little bit more. That's exactly what I would do in that situation. Like yeah, I, you know, I have a ten, I have a tendency that if I get something, I can't leave it untouched. It needs to have something you know, on it. Yeah, like stickers on guns and carvings mm. and stuff like that. You know, oh, so we've seen this guy people. lately who's got the cat ears. Yeah, I've seen him. Yep. You know, <laughs> it's, it's very normal over there. Where we see it, it's like weird. But you know, we'll wear unit patches. But to them, they'll have like ten patches on. And it's just all kinds of different symbolic uh, or anime or, you know, funny death cards or, you know, to them, it's a it's a, an expression where to us, we see it as like unit patches and, and very specific reasons why we have it on there. You know, them, they're 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 expressing themselves in such a different way than what we did in war. I think it's because they're civilians. It's uh, not it necessarily that they're military, they're conscripts. Yeah, you know, there's there is a lot of that. There's a lot of people that have joined and, and a lot of people that were pulled in. Um, and so you're seeing a very large spread of individuals um, come into these ranks. And it's a lot of younger generation. I was about to say, this is some Gen Z TikTok bullshit. That's what's going on here. Uh, yeah, but, you know, again, to them, like it, it helps get out that emotional range, right? Yeah, and um, Bellingcat said that I think 70% of their war crime evidence has come from TikTok. Oh, I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, like on both sides, think about it. You know, it, these people are just learning about what geolocation is. You know, we saw that early in the war where Rus Russians were filming themselves with like 203 uh, grenade systems launching mortars and they're literally filming themselves in the same exact moment, the same exact area where the thing's getting detonated at and it gets destroyed within an hour because you could geolocate it, find it on a map and detonate it. And that's, I think, part of, um, you know, the U.S. is very blessed, right? Like we, we have understanding and access to so much technology that if you look at Russia, for example, Russia is a very big country, but the population is not generally very large. And some of the people that live in uh, some of the other harsher areas, you know, don't have access to a lot of global access that we may have. Um, you know, they're very cut off from the rest of the world, even more so now where, you know, Facebook, Instagram and all these access uh, are, are pulled from those countries. And so you, the intelligence of individuals just may not be nearly what we're used to sometimes. And, um, it, and it, it starts to show. Because like, uh, um, and when they first invaded, um, they were on CCTV the entire time. And like it took them so long to realize that they that they had to move the cameras. So like every every not every like where everyone was was counted and logged, and it was like being and everyone was watching it live and just like counting them, counting them up through as they went down the road. 
Yeah, yeah, you know, when I was in Kiev, you saw a lot of bus stations that were also had spray painting on all their maps because um, it was known that Russia was using older maps and didn't have up to date. Um, That's awesome systems. And so to them, they started really breaking down and spray painting a lot of these maps so that they couldn't figure out what the updated routes were. Um, and, you know, everything over there is is open encrypted communication. It's very rare to see anything encrypted. Um, so, you know, there's people that are on Reddit that were old dads with like yeah, Reddit caused a few people to die. Yeah, well, it's Reddit. But what they were doing was they were going into these Russian uh, Russians communications, bouncing their signals off and being able to open talk inside of communication with the Russians. And so they were when a fight was going off, they would just hold their keys and block all the communication because nothing's encrypted. So it's you know, you can hear both sides talk. You can you can tap into radio comms on both sides. So it's it's very different than, um, you know, the way that we operate. All right, we want to close with anything, Jack? No, I'm pretty happy. Okay, so um, let's just kind of uh, say, like, let's do a nice little wrap up with a uh, six month outreach with Ukraine and uh, what you think is going to be happening there. Six month outreach. Hopefully, I'll be able to find myself back in country. Um, and I think you're going to continue to see a hard, a hard push through the east from Russia. You know, they're trying for Bakhmut, um, and they're really pumping up a lot of guys. I think the winter will slow things down some, um, but it's not going to be um, an easy fight for either side. All right. That's pretty good right there.